Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George, and on this show, we're here to explore how products are brought to market and talk about lessons learned along the way. Last week, we our special guest was Shane Harris, and I've got him here again today. So Shane, I'll let you do a brief introduction before we hop into today's episode. Yeah, I'm Shane Harris. At least I've been in product development for the last 15, 20 years now. Focused in a wide range of vertical markets and, and strategies, focus areas, products. I would say the core probably around financial sector, e-discovery, long-term debt appraisal, preservation, compliance, and those types of things. But here to talk about any, any, any anything in between. <laughs> awesome. And that's what we're here for. If you missed last week's episode, feel free to catch up on it. We did talk a little bit about product management, what's changed over time, a little bit about audience and buyer behavior. But today's episode, we're going to focus a little bit more about differentiating product strategy by customer needs. And Shane, obviously, there are two different core segments. There are your new customers and then your existing customers. How do you differentiate your product strategy by your customer needs? Or are there other ways that you tend to segment that? No, there, there, there are. You know, obviously, there's the new. Uh, you know, you're always looking for things to bring in new that customers are still challenged with or things that, that you haven't done before. And then there's the, you know, existing strategies. I, I think they... They both play in part as to what you try to accomplish. I think the the number one goal is to not over rotate, you know, one versus the other. When you're looking at new, you're trying to evaluate, trying to get as much information as you can from customers as to what challenges they have that you haven't addressed, right? And I think that's where it really starts. You can look at market data. You can look at, you know, the analysis of trends. And there's some things that you can pick from there, whether that's coming from the analysts or or somewhere else. But I think it's that's more difficult than when on the new side versus talking to your customers, right? And not just talking, you know, sitting down with them, having them to go through what is a day in a life, what is the day in a life for you look like? What, what do you do? Can you show me? Sometimes customers are a little hesitant to go through that, but I think you can always find a few that will go through it. And that's where you start to really see some things and say, wow, you, you spent hours doing this or you're constantly, you know, struggling with this type of thing, or there's, there's something out there that we would like to see, right? Once in a while, you'll get a customer who will do a Nirvana statement, right? You can even ask them that. What's Nirvana to you? And they'll come back and they'll say, oh, I'd love to have everything connected, Salesforce, NetSuite, or, you know, just for an example, and and the whole world and, you know, basically do my job for me so I can just go talk by the water cooler. And then you can try to figure out, you know, hey, well, there's some things that we can do there. And then, you know, the existing, obviously, is a completely different strategy of continuing to evolve, have evolution and improvement, right? And again, those areas come from, I think you can, you get a wider visibility or I should say a wider research area when it comes to that, because obviously now you can look at competitors, right? You can look at what else is being done in other market areas, you know, other products. Sometimes you're in a field where you may have products that um, you, you have your core competitors, but you also have competitors that you just share like 25% overlap, right? And they can be frenemies, right? They can be partner stuff. So that area to me is a lot different because it's, I think it's easier in one aspect because you have an idea of what's already out there. You have customer requests. You have things coming in the you know in the hopper. I think that's more of a prioritization type effort. New, I think, is where you really have to do as your product. Anybody in product, you have to do your homework, right? You have to get out there. You have to be looking. And if you don't see what people are doing or what the challenges are, then I think you'll miss the opportunities. 
No, absolutely. And I love that we kind of differentiated the needs between what's new versus kind of what's existing. But one of the things that I think I've seen over the course of my career as well is how do you prioritize a lot of these asks? And that's where a little bit of segmentation comes in as well. And what I mean by segmentation, especially for new customers, you definitely have to segment that type of information and the request you get from there because every new customer is going to have a different level of either technical knowledge or experience using likewise products or former products. And that's where I think some of the segmentation from a marketing perspective could help product teams as well. Because if you have a customer who has used software before, they may have requests based just on what their software lacked of. Or newer customers also may just have no knowledge of any technology or newer technology out there. And it becomes more of an educational program as well. And then sort of breaking it down, in the past as well, what I've seen worked really well is that you've got three layers of, of tiers. So a tier one request would be something that both new and existing customers all want, and they know it's going to benefit them. So everybody gets access to that thing. Two customers are basically, we've already got them or you know they're already existing. And we're getting requests that may service and excite new customers, but also keep our existing ones happy. Tier three is, as to your point, just the improvements. Like how do we keep them happy if something's not quite working? And I think that's something that I've seen worked well. You know, we kind of touched upon this in the last episode a little bit, but for product prioritization, kind of looking at that perspective, I know we kind of mentioned a little bit about the three P's. Could you go into detail of what the three P's are for us? Yeah, well, actually, it's just just what I call the threes, but yeah, the three prioritizations. So what is, and this is where it keeps, you know, I've alluded to this a couple of times, is if you accidentally over-rotate, right, on on a certain area. So the way I've broke these down over time is tech debt, innovation, and then customer feature requests. And that kind of goes along with new, old, and then tech debt, obviously, is is paying the piper. And if, you know, for newer startup organizations, the tech that course is a lot lighter and you are incredibly focused on innovation. And then that starts to shift to customer requests and innovation. And then over time, you pick up this third barrel, which is tech debt. As you get into much mature or, you know, the, the product has been out there, even cloud, right? Everybody says, oh, tech does not say cloud. Yeah, it is. The matter of fact, sometimes I'd say it's even worse, but the, the more mature the product gets, you start to get this tech that in there. So what I really try to get the teams to focus on as much as possible is one third of each. You can't do that every quarter. But I think having some strategy around it is what you have to do. Tech that is probably the hardest one over time to fight for. Because nobody wants to, nobody wants to give up any product prioritization on a roadmap to tech debt, except for engineering. Engineering is the only one, right, who wants to refactor and do tech debt. But if you kick that can down the road too long, then somewhere along the line, the platform will probably start to to create its own issues and slow you down. The tech debt one is probably the one that, over time, when I talk to people, is trying to explain and then you'll see those incidents start coming up. Like one that I think a lot of applications, if you M&A activity, that type of thing always comes into play is identity, right? How do we have one identity service? How do we have one indexing service? Or how do we have one core architecture that stores data, blah, 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 right? We've all been through this. And what happens is, is you end up, you know, especially the faster you grow, you end up with a ton of different technologies, aging technologies, 
And then it starts to slow your platform down because sometimes you don't even have the engineers who originally built it. So it's very hard to go back and build on top of it, right? This is where the tech debt becomes crucial is because moving that forward allows you to get away from that and allows you to continue, hopefully, developing at some reasonable, you know, good pace without having to, again, deal with these older platforms that slow you down. Then on the feature side, you have customer requests that continually come in. And I've seen the other issue where your entire roadmap is customer features. And you can do that. A lot, a lot of companies do that. I think that's probably another big one that we see constantly is everything is customer features, right? Everything. Well, then you're leaving a couple things behind. One big one is innovation. This is truly what's new, what's going to change the game, spending you know a little bit of those resources and taking a risk, right? And we're going to try something new. We're going to see how this goes. And I think if you look at any one of these three, if you leave them for too long, something is going to happen. If you, you don't do customer feature requests at all, then they're going to churn, right? They're going to get frustrated and leave. If you're not innovating, you'll fall behind in market. And then sales you know, basically gets beat up, right? Because they can't continue to keep up. And you're getting out innovated, right? You're basically outflanked, right? I could say customer features probably affect sales as well as all. And then tech debt, you kick that one down the road for too long. And that one will continue to bite you. And I've been, I've been places where, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but it's true. I've been in places where you have had to cut almost six months continuous out of a roadmap and, and park everything to move something forward before you can start going. So it's, it's literally a five, six steps back before you can start going one forward because the amount of tech debt that was amassed, instead of taking care of it as you were going through, it just built up to a point to where you had to stop everything. So and that's my threes rule is to try not to get away from anyone too long because if you do, it's going to affect you somewhere. The more that you can balance those things and try to stay on some good relative path there and then force yourself. Innovation being one of my see that one get that one I think gets dropped a lot because of the feature, the feature request. And you have to stand up for it as a product, you know, as inside a product organization, you know, in, inside of when you build your value propositions, those things, those, those things you really have to stand up for and say, look, and use the motivation of sales and other parts of the organization to help you build that. If you go forward, you know, with any one of these, right, except for customer features, if you go forward with tech debt and you say, I want to do tech debt, get engineering behind you. <laughs> Because engineering is going to help you probably put you know enough value to that, enough votes to where okay, well, we understand you're going to address some tech debt this quarter, some security things, libraries, whatever. And on the, on the innovation side, get sales right. As who's more excited than anybody right on innovation or things that you could possibly bring into market than sales? So use them to help your your business case and your motivation if you have to. So, but that's my my general rule on as I call the threes. <laughs> no, and that's awesome. And I kind of want to go back to the tech debt because I think that's one that I think a lot of smaller organizations or newer startups kind of forgo as they think about product prioritization. And what I mean by that is that they start off building a product and, you know, five years down the road, they're realizing that the existing architecture that they built that product on can no longer service the number of customers that they have. So they've got to pivot. And one of the things that I constantly see or have been seeing more and more of or hearing more and more of is a lot of younger startups who start off either building something on an original mainframe and then want to switch because they realize we've grown too much, we've acquired too many customers, 
And that existing architecture cannot support new customers going forward. And one thing that kind of holds them back is that tech debt, because now they've got too much of it. So they need to pivot strategy. And whether that is moving to whatever new fancy thing it is, whether it's microservices is the big one that engineering loves these days, it takes a while to get to that point. What advice do you have for organizations that have to make that pivot? Yeah, you can't do it all. Well, you're trying to avoid doing it all at once. So it's, it's you know, bite off what you can chew in chunks. And again, at that 33% or that 30%, try to take as much as you can, you know, given them the quarter or a couple quarters, you know, whatever you can, whatever you can do. The, the worst thing is to not address it. The other thing that, you know, you brought up, we saw a lot of was generally it's faster to go out and build into a lot of the Amazon tools or, you know, Azure, one of those. And oftentimes that gets very costly long run. Where it also gets costly is when competition starts to to edge in there. And now you're all racing right down. You're all racing to zero. And you have this big cost that you can't get rid of. And then they start looking at, well, how can I move off of that particular part of the platform and get to more cost effective? Well, one of the bigger issues, and and the open source community is getting better about building similar infrastructures as the cloud platforms do to make it easier for you to get out of them. But I think that's one of the things that you should just watch for is is easy and quick and easy as you're going to pay for it at some point. The sooner that you start to realize that and the sooner that you are able to adjust or change, and it could be the other way. You know, you could be that you you built everything yourself from the core ground up and some of those components, you say, hey, you know what? This is actually more flexible to maybe move to the cloud. So it could be the complete opposite direction, move to a public cloud. But it's those taking those risks and understanding what they are, but doing nothing is the biggest one I see in danger. And you have to have a heart to heart with everybody and sit down and say, okay, what can we chew off, right? And, and part of my conversation today was with my teams were the same exact thing around this. Okay, how are we going to chew this this off? And there's other things you can do too. You can look at OEM partnerships with other platforms for immediate, you know, to say, hey, this is going to bridge the gap. We can just get rid of this. And we're going to choose a, a third-party OEM for a period of time. And then knowing that, you know, two, three years, we'll come back and build this back into ours. So that's the other thing I would say is look at the other areas that maybe solve the problem. And what is the most beneficial that you can do long and short term, right? So that your short term plan doesn't always have to be the same as the long term. But the biggest thing I see is when it comes to that is if you don't do something to address it, the work stoppage is the, the bad one. And I've seen it happen. I've heard of it happening multiple times where you effectively almost stop everything. Sometimes it even comes at a security event, right? So something happens there's this internal race because now you're getting audited and the whole world has to come to a complete stop. If you look underneath the covers on a lot of those, whether they admit it or not, generally speaking, it's because they kicked tech debt down the road. I can almost guarantee it. So if you look underneath the covers of a lot of these where they've had events happen, whether they got infiltrated, something happened, whatever it was, it's, it's almost always because... They didn't effectively do something. You always get the people internally who say, yeah, we told you that. We knew that was coming. We saw that. We brought it up a year ago, right? It falls underneath that same bucket. Tech debt to me is the same thing. The engineers, usually it's not, it's not, you can't say, well, we didn't know. Generally, you definitely know. It's the somebody putting their foot down and saying, we're going to start to address this. 
But the thing is, can you break it apart in chunks so it doesn't kill you? No, and I I totally agree and understand that too. And, you know, this also goes to a little bit of what we were talking about last time about audience behavior too. It's you've got this great thing, but you've also got to prove to your audience that it's worth their time and they should. And I think one of the things that we've also forgotten from a product and marketing perspective is there's been a lot of change in the last 20 years and not all of it has already been adopted. Some people are slower to adopt to newer technologies. And I know everyone probably feels the pain with their own parents trying to explain how to do things. It's one of those things we forgot to kind of put into our plans is that human element of making people comfortable. Like I am still teaching my mom how to copy and paste and even access her online (laughs) banking. So, I mean, if I'm doing it with my mom and, you know, it goes back to human nature, you have some 10% of the population that's willing to go and do things on their self. They're called the exemplars. And then you've got 90% of the population that kind of just trails along and they're not, you know, as quick to adopt or maybe don't know how to. One of the things that always kills me as a Canadian is when I go to the US, you guys don't even have tap technology. Like chip and pin is like brand new over there. And I'm just like, I constantly make the mistake of trying to tap my card because I can do that here. And people look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, what are you doing? And I'm like, you don't have tap here. So that's something I grew accustomed to. And now I have to remember when I go to other places, that's technology that doesn't exist. Yep. Yeah, same thing in the UK and other areas. I know when I used to travel, I used to have that problem was the swipe cards. <laughs> you know, the US had for so many years, they, Europe stopped using them. So you'd go someplace and you'd have the swipe card, no chip. And they would look at you and go, where's your chip? I don't have one. And you'd have to like, they'd have to go in the back and pull out the, the, the machine they had five years ago and plug it back in to run your card for you. Right. <laughs> Cause they had, they had no other way, but yeah, I don't know why that is why, uh, but I will agree that it seems like the U S can be not, I wouldn't say last, but they're definitely can be behind in adopting some of the technologies here. Yeah. And that's the thing. There is a lot coming out very quickly, faster, I think, at any point of time in history. It's also a matter of playing catch up because the next thing is always on the edge of coming out. So, and not that I want to think about what's going to come out after tap. I mean, I'm still waiting. And I had seen someone purchased a company that sold wearable rings. They were trying to do digital identity on that. So you could actually wear a ring and that would be your digital identification to access everything online. This company was purchased eight years ago haven't heard a peep since they were bought, but I was hoping that's something that comes out because digital privacy is something that we definitely need to be investing a lot more in, especially as digital crimes start to amplify. Yeah. Well, you can go a little further. There was one a few years back that they had embedded chips. So you can embed the chip into your skin and that's what you use for scanner. Now I, I definitely <laughs> see that one taking off because you know, that, that, that sends people right to the biblical sense immediately. And I, I can see that one failing that I think we're a ways away from adopting that one, but but again, to your point, right? What's the what's the gaps in between? First, it's it's a ring, it's something you wear. Really, you could say it's your device that you have today, right? I mean, at some point you're you're starting to get people naturally, you know, to that. Whether you stare at it and it, it scans your eyeball, and that's your next payment form, plus your fingertip, you know what I mean, and and you know your verbal whatever, and all of a sudden you're you're out of the checkout line, right? So the next thing from that is, you know, yeah, you just have a chip. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the evolution will continue. And the thing is, that's it's, it's really weird to me is a lot of times when I create product, I think of the risk side first. And I'm like, wow, that's way too risky. I can't see people, you know, adopting. I can't see my customers taking that on. In certain industries and other areas, that's absolutely 100%. Right. Um, I focus a big portion of my career on that. 
But in other areas of our market, I'm always surprised at how many people don't really consider the risk or they, they just don't care. They seem to care until it happens to them. So, you know, when I look at technology and things that happen like ring, in other areas where people don't even know if somebody's got you know, access to your camera, right? We've seen the reports. So how many of the how many do we not know of, right? I mean, and not not to be somebody creating conspiracy theories, <laughs> but at all. But I think the in home. There's been a lot of talk about this, right, on on nightly news and stuff that the in home devices can be easily overtaken. A lot of times they're old, right? Your router is ancient. You don't update it, and all these types of things, right? But it's kind of funny. We still want to buy all those things inside of our house, the last thing a consumer probably looks at is risk of that particular item. Their assumption is that the company selling it to you has that in your best behalf. And what they don't understand is that nine times out of 10, the people creating that product, they're trying to create the features that that product is that, you know, sold it to you, right? The interesting thing. The security and stuff is important to them. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think it takes front and center stage. And we've seen that over and over again. So there's this weird, even in the business world, there is this acceptance of, I want the new technology or I want this so bad that I'm going to assume and take the risk with it. And and then in some cases, it bites you. In some cases, it doesn't. In some cases, maybe you close the risk fast enough, right? So you do, you, you put something in product knowing that there's something that you need to address. Hopefully, you address it fast enough and then, you know, that, that, that nothing occurs. But there is this thing, even in the business world, I've seen it where I'm, I'm, I'm always shocked when I say, well, I could do this, but then it's going to take me longer to do this. Well, just give me this first. Okay, well, there's an exposure there. That's fine. We know the exposure. We'll document it. And then that seems to how to make everything better or, you know, just it's okay. Because it, it, it won't happen, you know, those types of things, right? So to your point, though, there is this kind of weird, you know, when it when it comes to acceptance criteria, we talk about this all the time, product, you know, acceptance criteria, risk, security, those should be top of mind. But I would ask product people across the globe, how many in your acceptance criteria and everything are actually have a security or risk component to them? Because I know a lot of times when I see them, uh, they don't. They don't even cover a risk or acceptance. They, 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 you know, there's, there's very little sometimes or none at all. And then other companies have a very good process in which they address the security and risk concerns, you know, automatically. So again, something else in the tech debt category. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's a great point too. And, you know, risk is something we definitely need to assess. And, you know, think the first thing that came to mind as you were talking about that was car manufacturers. We are seeing unprecedented amounts of car theft. And it's as simple as someone with a card reader that only needs to be within X amount of distance of your key fob to hijack your car. Like you would think we know this is happening and the increases, you know, year over year, the amount of auto theft that's happening is constantly going up and up within the global, like the global space. Car manufacturers have not actively done anything about this. Whether it is ensuring your key fob can be locked or whether it's an RFID protection, I don't know because I'm not in this space. Whatever it is, we're not protecting those key fobs, let alone my fear is, and I, I do have a newer vehicle, is the digital systems that now come with cars. Because if you can hijack just my key fob, who's to say in the next two or three years, someone's not going to figure out how to hijack my entire system? That's where it gets a little bit funky because the basic key fob there's no protection, let alone you want me to buy electric and you want to change everything to electric. And I'm seeing amazing vehicles and I'm like, oh my God, it's so cool. I'm excited about it. But I'm like, 
oh, do I really want that? Because I'm like, it could be hackable. And then what do I do if I get stuck? Maybe I'm just watching too much TV because there was an episode in like 911 that covered exactly this where a car was hijacked on the highway. And I'm like, that is something I do think about. I know most consumers probably don't think like me, but that is a risk that I think I would think about as a consumer before purchasing a vehicle. Yeah, who would have thought that to make your car unattractable is buy something that was built in the 90s with a stick shift, which... (laughs) Which, which basically makes it to where nobody's going to steal it because A, they can't figure out how to drive it. And then B, they, it doesn't have a computer chip. So they're like, what do we do? Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? Yeah. Uh, it kind of goes, goes back in time. But that's the other thing, you know, as new technology. Again, you brought it up, right? The cars. And that's been going on for a while. The ability to map a key from proximity has been a problem for you know, I go back as things since since a lot of that technology came out. I'd say go back to the early days of some of the Cadillacs and things that had the early ones you could do it on. You could quickly, you know, figure out the chip to start them. So yeah, there's you know, and it have to your point, all these years have gone by. How much have they done to completely stop it? I I wouldn't say we're anywhere near where we should be. But our car manufacturers, what are they, you know, and I have no idea, like you said, but I think if you look at it from a product perspective, they're in a race against each other. So until the mainstream makes that a priority is the people who own them. But, you know, a lot of cases, that's the other thing. It falls through insurance, right? So this is where, you know, we have this backwards thing of you almost need the insurance companies to push the automobile manufacturers because in the end, the consumers do pay for it in some way. But the bigger, you know, the bigger ones who are paying for it are the insurance companies. You can go, you get me off on tangents. I've often said this about (laughs) credit card. Credit cards are one of the ones I just don't understand whatsoever because the bank knows at the minute your credit card is probably being used unlawfully, the bank knows immediately. I have asked the banks numerous times over and over again why they don't tell the vendors immediately or give the vendors the ability to subscribe to a database to do a query. Because how many times do, does the bank know it? The vendor hasn't even shipped it yet, right? And they ship it not knowing that they're not going to get paid for it in 30, 60, 90 days. Mm-hmm. That is one of these big gaps where we as a consumer just pay the higher prices. And it seems like such a simple thing to close the gap on. I just never understand why they won't. I understand there's some privacy stuff there to probably get some hurdles over it, but there's got to be a way to solve this. So any product people listening in and you're in that space and industry, do us a favor. <laughs> and and figure out how to protect the vendors and the whole thing. You have the information, let's use it, right? You know, use it for the good, not the bad. Yeah, I mean, a verified vendor application would be great too. If you're a vendor with an online system, you should be able to verify your business with a credit card system. You also need to add an element to the third parties that you work with as well. And that's just something we haven't seen lately. It's, you know, always someone else's problem. And then now you've got all, you know, a new sector of businesses that are now here to protect your credit score, here to protect your, your purchases. And it's just created another industry when they really should be tied together. Yeah. And most of the time they just pay it, you know, somebody just pays in the end. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's this is where you said, you know, where's the biggest improvement? I think there's a lot of improvements still left out there. If you look at you know, different industries across the board and even the industry that you work in, no matter what it is, it's those types of things that I think, you know, people go, what's the biggest thing that moves the needle forward? All right. So we've talked about some things here, things that we all probably could resonate with automobiles, you know, credit cards and so forth. But in your industry, what are those things? Again, there's, there's more than likely something out there you're missing could be as significant as one of the ones that we talked about where you just haven't paid attention to, or you think that, 
nobody cares because it's immaterial. And that's, that's when, you know, whether you can try to get some creative juices running, this goes back to something else too, where I think the more people that you have in your organization who are working to understand the, the, your users, your market and your area and what you're solving for, somebody will come up with something, you know, that, that does change, right? That's, it's either innovative, breaks the, the mold, you know, those types of things. One of the, Challenges I think you see in this is we're sitting here talking about the automobile manufacturers. Now, if somebody listens to this and they're in that space, they go, yeah, we know about that. We're trying to. But as important as, you know, the next engine or the next electric thing, because you got to keep up in market. No. And that's the challenge I think we all have to overcome is you talked about this early on. So to bring this full circle, how do you prioritize? Right. How do you get to prior? Sometimes those things that are the hardest things to justify or fight for because they just don't seem irrelevant, but you know that it is an issue where you know it's something needs to be addressed or it has come up. If you're not the first one to tackle it, then you'll quickly be the tail, right? Sometimes you have to make that decision. That's why I talked about innovation. You're not always going to get it right, but look at your industry, look at what you're doing. Pay attention to the trends and the things and to people or challenges, the fears that they have and so forth. Is it too early? Maybe. But if you're too late, the, the cost is even worse, right? Because trying to play catch up in market is, is much, much difficult. So I would challenge everybody to do that, no matter what industry you're in. Is spending the time to understand, again, what your customer and get your complete teams involved. One of the gaps I see in organizations, and this more often than not, is, that, like I said, that we talked about this about last week, is... The gap between product and engineering, the gap between marketing and product and engineering, and not everybody completely understanding who you're creating a product for or what you're creating a product for and what problems you're trying to solve. I can't say how many times I walk in and I would say engineering, I see this quite often where engineering is reading requirements, building the product, you know, and doing what they need to do. If you go back and you say, especially in complex products where I'll use this one, for example, e-discovery, you go back and you go, do you know what somebody's using it for or why they're using it? And they, they look at you and go, no, they search, right? Or something. But educating them on what is a legal hold? Why do people search? What does a subpoena mean? What happens to a customer when they receive a subpoena? What are the steps they need to take? How much time do they have to respond to a, a legal event? If they respond inappropriately, what are the sanctions? What does it mean? What information do they have to provide? How does that process actually work? And I'm going on and on and on. And this is basically, I could talk for another three hours just about the discovery process. <laughs> but my point here is, is that getting the engineers to have some level of understanding who your audience is, and I would say that's across the board. I'm just using engineers for an example, is the why you're creating it, who you're creating it for, and getting them to understand the day in a life. Now, you can't sit them down and take hours and hours out of their schedule. But I think at some point when you come into product... You should be doing a backwards-facing QBR, as I call it, as you do front. So there's a couple areas inside your business you should be talking to. One is, is the CEO on the front end to say, and the executive to say, this is why we want to go build. This is why we want to do tech debt. This is what we want to do. And this is why. This is the impact it's going to have. And you're, you're, you're putting those together. Churn, new money, new whatever. Or basically, we don't do this. We're gonna, it's all going to break next week. The other side of it is, is every quarter or, or more, you should be doing the same thing with every team internally. Well, that's your marketing team, your engineering team to say, look, this is the successes we had last quarter, right? So your engineering and your marketing or other areas of the business are going to be different on how you build your data points. But the whole thing is, is getting everybody to understand the same page. If everybody's communicating 
and everybody understands what you're doing and why you're doing it. And you're taking everybody's feedback, right? And maybe you do that in sections, right? To get everybody's feedback. The more coherent you get, the more ideas will come up. And this is one thing I have said this for years. Some of the things that have launched the product in directions and, and really taken off. And I know my product teams will kill me for saying this, but didn't come from product. They actually came from different parts of the organization, including engineering. There's things that engineers know that they can do that product would never, never even know because we didn't know that that integration existed. We didn't know we could do something like that. So I think it's key in trying to solve these problems. And if you look inside these organizations that you're talking about, especially some of the larger ones, I bet 10 to 1 you would find that the communication or some of these are very disparate and broke apart. Where again, you have a team that's being told to go do something and they go do it. They meet the checkbox, they meet the requirement, they're finished. Now, if they understood what they were maybe doing or understood the bigger picture or they were educated at the same level, Maybe they would have actually produced something differently. They would have said, hey, we're, we met the checkboxes, but we also realized you forgot to put the door lock button in there, right? Because they're going to want to lock the door. Those types of things where you go, oh, yeah, you know what? That's a good point. Yeah, they're going to want to lock the door. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, you walk up to it in the car, automatically door flung open. They're going to want to lock it. So those things I think are critical. And if I think it was recently somebody asked me, you know, secret to a lot of the successes that I've had. It's 100% been team. It's without a doubt. It's not just, it's definitely not me. You know, 100%, I don't go back and say, I did, I did, I did. It's the team. I've been blessed to work with really, really great people in my career. But I think the big thing that I have been able to do is to make sure that we're all speaking at cadence and we're all educated. I don't want anybody to be in the dark. I'm not threatened, nor should you be, about what somebody knows, like sharing the information should never be threatening. And if they step forward and actually even... If an engineer came forward and wrote some product requirements, right? <laughs> Doesn't threaten me. Not, nothing at all, right? That just means that they understand what we're trying to accomplish. And that they, you know, that they wanted to chip in. Those are those types of environments you should be building, right? So culture, if you want to really succeed and you're the threes and all that part of the organization, transparency, the way you educate people, but being open, not be threatened and get the more people that can be part of the solution and help you drive the solution, the more success we have. If you put that weight all on your head to say, I've got to be the one to think about this. I have to be the one. My boss is saying, what's our vision for the next quarter? What's our thing? What's, you know, and prioritize these things. And it can be stressful. I've had product people come to me and go, wow, totally. This is, you know, beyond, I don't know how to do all this. The first thing I tell them is, Go communicate. The more people you talk to inside your organization, outside your organization, we'll do a couple of things. One, get them more involved in the process. Two, probably get them effectively on your side long term. But three, it will help you build and prioritize and know that you are going the right direction. It takes the pressure off. The biggest habit that I think is the wrong or it takes you the wrong direction again is if everybody stays in their lane. The education doesn't occur. The communication doesn't. I'm product. How many times have we seen, you know, product? I'm right. This is what my customer needs. This is what I'm prioritizing. You know, you go in and you challenge those same people and you say, where did you get it from? You find out that in a lot of cases, they haven't talked to their customer. They're kind of just, you know, this is what they think. They read some support tickets, you know, whatever. That's what gets you, I think, you know, in the, the biggest challenge areas. And being learning to be open. I've always said product is a triangle that sits in the middle of the organization, you know, and your customers as a whole. And if you're not getting information coming in on every point in that triangle from multiple different places, you're probably not doing your job as effectively as you can.
No, and I 100% agree with that because it almost sounds like you need to have a product QBR within the various teams and stakeholders in your organization to really cover that off. Shane, I want to thank you for being on the show again. This has been great. If you haven't listened to the first podcast, highly encourage you to go do that. We talk a little bit about prioritization. Today, we've talked about you know Shane's threes, a little bit about how to get your teams on board. And of course, we covered a little bit about discovery, which we could have gone into another three hours for. But that's a topic for another day. So stay tuned. And I have some great guests coming up on future episodes that we'll dive into more topics around. Thanks for your time, everyone. Thanks for having me. 